Merry Christmas, Uncle. God save you. Ah, humbug. Christmas humbug? Uncle, you don't mean that. Merry Christmas. What reason have you to be merry? You're poor enough. What right have you to be so dismal? You're rich enough. Humbug! Don't be cross, Uncle. What else can I be when I live in such a world of fools as this? Merry Christmas. What's Christmas time to you but a time for paying bills without money? A time for finding yourself a year older and not a penny richer? If I could work my will, every idiot who goes about with Merry Christmas on his lips should be boiled in his own pudding and buried with a stake of holly through his heart. Uncle! Nephew! Keep Christmas in your own way and let me keep it in mine. Keep it? But you don't keep it. Let me leave it alone, then. Much good it has ever done you. There are many things from which I have derived good and have not profited. Christmas being among them. But I've always thought of Christmas as a kind, charitable time. The only time when men open their shut-up hearts and think of all people as fellow travellers to the grave and not some other race of creatures bound on other journeys. And therefore, Uncle, although it has never put a scrap of gold or silver in my pocket, I believe it has done me good, and I say, God bless it! Let me hear another sound out of you, Cratchit, and you'll keep Christmas by losing your situation. You're quite a powerful speaker, sir. I wonder you don't go to the heart of town big cross, Uncle. Come, dine with us tomorrow. Let's see who first. He just might, too. Not a very nice guy. Welcome to worship. Welcome to Advent at Chapel Hill. If you are visiting with us for the first time, we are making a journey through a variety of uh, Christmas movies as a way of illustrating for us our Advent journey through John's epic prologue, the opening verses of his gospel. Uh, This is a magnificent passage of Scripture. It is sublime. You could reflect on it for the rest of your life and still not have have mined the depths of it. Last week, we saw John as he was introducing us to this fellow that he calls the Word. What's the Greek word for that? Do you remember? Logos. Say logos. So we're introduced to this, this chap, Logos, and John makes some astounding claims about this person. He says that the Logos is God. The Logos is eternal. The Logos is the creator of all things. And the Logos is the the bringer of light. Light so powerful that it just decimates whatever darkness it enters. And we quickly realize that John is teasing us that this Logos idea is really his nickname for Jesus. And we are being introduced to John's version of the Christmas story. This is not your Hallmark Channel version of the Christmas story with shepherds and wise men and mangers and all of the rest. We have no baby Jesus, meek and mild. No, this this is the Logos, the eternal, divine, creator, life giver, and he is about to make his appearance on the world scene. That's what John wants to portray for us. Last week we got the start with that magnificent prologue and we continue on in verse 6. Listen as John continues to unfold the story of the Logos. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. 
He came as a witness to the light, to bear witness to the light that all might believe in him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. And now, Logos, eternal God, our Son, our Spirit, our Father, would you bring light to our hearts this day as we allow your word to speak to us in ways that it has never done before. For we ask it through Christ our Lord. Amen. Last night was a big night in downtown Gig Harbor with all the lights and the ships and all of that. Cindy and I went a couple of weeks ago. We went to Ace Hardware and and bought uh, our first string of lights for our first Christmas in our brand new old house downtown that we are in the process of remodeling. And really, when you turn to the verse that I just read for you, you understand why light has always meant so much to Christians at this time. That verse alone that I just read mentions the word light five times. Light, 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 light. In fact, looking back, it mentions it even a couple of more times. And so John begins to weave through his gospel this theme that will occur again and again and again and again. The light, 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 light. And you wonder, where is he coming from? Why is he doing this? Last week, I I reminded you that John borrowed the opening words of his gospel from another another book that would have been very familiar to his readers, the book of Genesis, the very first book in our Bible. You turn back to that verse book there, and you will find the very same three words to open the the first chapter of Genesis. In the beginning. In the beginning, John says. He steals those for himself. He uses them in his opening of his gospel. But there's a reason, because he's trying to point out a continuing theme. You think back to Genesis that starts with, in the beginning... And you discover there that this is the account of creation. And you pretty quickly also discover how important light is to the story of creation. One of the most impressive displays of the power of Almighty God is in those early moments prior to creation. In the midst, the darkness of pre-creation. We see that God steps on the scene and he speaks into the darkness and he says, Let there be light. And boom, there is light. He speaks it, and it happens, and the light sends out, chases out the darkness of of the pre-creation mists. And now John takes us thousands of years later, and he tells us this. He says, God has spoken again. God has spoken another word, again. And this word chases out the darkness as truly as it did back in Genesis, again. But this time, the darkness that he's talking out is not the darkness of pre-creation void. The darkness that John refers to when he speaks here is the darkness of human depravity, of the brokenness of human beings, the brokenness of sin. And, And what he's trying to tell us is that despite all that God has done to create and to bless humankind, to bless us, we have lived in a state of full-scale rebellion. 
By the time that John is writing his words, he is saying, listen, we are absolutely dark in our sin and we need help. I don't suppose any parent here has ever, in a moment of frustration, said something like this to their kid. Why are you so ungrateful? Why are you so ungrateful after all that we have done for you? I'm sure no parent here has ever thought or uttered those kinds of words because the Chapel Hill kids are are perfection. But in the chance that you might know a parent who has ever expressed words like that, why are you so ungrateful? You have a moment of catching a glimpse into the heart of God who looks down upon this world that he created, this humanity that poured his heart, his life into, and all he sees is ingratitude and selfishness and rebellion and darkness. This is the state that we face. This is the state into which John is writing these words. And it does raise the question, what's a God to do? Maybe he just wipe us all out and start all over again. Except he did that once. Remember? It's the story of Noah and the flood and the ark. And at the end of that, God said, you know what? I'm never going to do that again. But now we, we discover that God had another plan that he had been developing since, the, since eternity passed. And here's God's ultimate plan. He says, I am going to come to earth myself. I'm going to come incognito, in disguise, I'm going to put on human flesh and maybe then I'll be able to have a face-to-face encounter with my children and they're going to look into my eyes and they're going to discover how much I love them, who I really am, and how much better it is when we live the way that I created them to live. And so that was God's plan. And he set out to do it. First of all, he chose a people that would be his earthly family. The Bible calls them the Jews. He started by choosing this family and beginning to build this family in ages past. And then he sent a save-the-date announcements. You've received one of those. If there was a birthday coming or an anniversary or coming, you know, you get a, a note or an email that says, save the date. It's coming. It's coming. God did the same thing. He called them prophets. He sent his save-the-date announcements. Century after century after century, God kept saying, I'm coming. I'm coming. You better be ready because I'm on my way. And then he came. And that's what Christmas is really about. Christmas is really about the Logos, the powerful, eternal creator God who humbled himself, who dressed up in human flesh and came to visit. Not as a conquering warrior, although he will appear that way someday. Not as a magnificent king, although he will appear that way someday. But this time, as a baby. He snuck up on us. Who can be intimidated by a baby? He came quietly. And then he began to grow up. He learned to work next to his father in his father's carpentry shop. He went to synagogue with his family. He hung out with the neighbor kids. He learned to live with siblings. He experienced the love of his mother and he loved her back. He experienced the death of his father. And he took over the family business. For 30 years, Logos Incognito, the word in disguise, lived a perfect, sinless life the way that we were created to live. He lived what we are supposed to be. And then the day came. Then the day came. A guy named John the Baptist dunked Jesus in the Jordan River. And he was off and running. 
He talked with an authority that people had never seen before. He cast out evil spirits. He healed people. He performed great miracles. He even raised people from the dead. Now, of course, if you are the divine, eternal creator of the universe, this is just another day at the office for you, right? This is no big deal. But the people who heard that teaching, the people who experienced that power, those miracles, they had never experienced anything like it. So surely you would imagine that they would say, this must be the one, the one that we have awaited for hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years. This might be the guy, the Messiah. Surely they must have thrown a party for him, the likes of which the world had never seen as they welcomed him into their presence. Surely they would do that, right? Not exactly. We turn in this verse, in this passage, to what I think is one of the saddest passages of Scripture. Listen to this. The true light was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. How sad is that? Cindy and I flew back to North Carolina to be with our daughter Rachel for Thanksgiving. Rachel lives in an apartment up in the mountains, and so it's not easy to find her. So she said, I want you to meet me at a certain place. I will meet you there. So we pulled up at the appointed hour. And Rachel came roaring up in her car as only Rachel roars when she drives. She slams on the brakes, the car still rocking as the door flies open. And she jumps out and she wraps her arms around me and says, Daddy. And then she ran around to the other side of the car and did the same thing with her mommy. And then she led us on a tour of her life. She took us to her home and she gave us her bedroom. She provided food for us. She took us on a tour of the campus where she now works and and the town that she now loves. She, by every one of those acts, she was saying, I am so delighted to receive you. I'm so delighted to welcome you to my home. When Jesus came to visit, not only did they not receive him, they didn't even know him. And when they finally figured out who he was, they were so threatened by the way that he was going to overturn their lives that they grew to hate him, to resent him, and some of them conspired to kill him. It's like the scene that we saw just before my sermon, where the nephew, Fred, comes into Scrooge's office and he wants to invite Scrooge to Christmas dinner. Fred wants to welcome his uncle into his family's joy. And Scrooge repays his kindness with bitter contempt. He's so wrapped up in his own mean, miserly world that he will not receive him. Do you know someone like that? I know you do. Everybody knows someone like that. And most of us have an uncle like that. A person who is so utterly self-absorbed, so pinched, so miserable and mean. And you try to share your faith with them. You try to share the joy of Christmas with them. And they resist you. Or they reject you. Or they mock you. Or they scorn you. It's so sad. When you 
have lived in the light of Christ, you know the joy that that can bring to watch these loved ones of yours continuing to stumble in the darkness. It is heartbreaking. And it's very easy for us to lose hope. But John says, don't you dare. Because there's one more line that we have here that that reminds us of the hope is ours. He says, it's true, the people who should have known Jesus rejected him. The people who should have welcomed Jesus turned their backs on him, raised their fists against him. But he said, but to all who did receive him, to them he gave the power, the right to become children of God. This is the bittersweet story of Jesus. Those who should have received him consider him to be humbug. But those who would have been unlikely to receive him, the irreligious, the outsiders, the harlots and the drunkards and the Roman soldiers and the tax collectors, all of these unworthy outsiders, even the curmudgeons, those who did believe him, those who did receive him, he gave them the right to become child of God. But how did this happen? How is it that outsiders like that, who weren't even in on the inside family, who never got the save the date notices, how is it that they end up receiving and believing in Jesus? Well, I've always felt like this first chapter of John could have used a little bit of an editor. Now, far be it for me to tell the Holy Spirit how to write Holy Scriptures, but I I thought he could have tightened it up a little bit. Because when you're reading along there, you see this magnificent stuff about the Logos. It starts off this magnificently, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Wow! And then it goes on kind of poignantly where it says, He came to His own, and His own did not receive Him. And then it ends triumphantly, but all who did receive him, who believed in his name, to them he gave the power to become children of God. All of this is great stuff. Logos, 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 light, light, light. And then shoehorned right in the middle of that wonderful, magnificent psalm of praise to the word is this little chunk about John the Baptist. There was a man who came, he was sent from God. He was a witness. His name was John. He wasn't the light, he was just but he was a witness to the light, pointing to the light. He said, wait, 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 you're just messing everything up. I was in the flow, I was in the Logos flow. And what is this? Why are you dropping this right in the, in the middle of it? It just seemed crammed in. And like I said, a good editorial pen could have really cleaned it up. This week, for the first time, and actually as I was thinking about the movie, I, I saw, an, saw it in a new way. I think John, the writer of the gospel, not John the Baptist, John, the writer of the gospel, is saying this. As amazing as this logos is, this eternal, divine, life-giving, light-giving person, God uses ordinary human beings dropped right in the middle of our lives. Ordinary human beings like John, the Baptist, to point others to his son. John wasn't the light, He just pointed to the light. He didn't need to be the hero. He just pointed to the hero. And I think John, the the gospel writer, is telling us this is how God chooses to adopt children into his family. The witness of plain, old, persistent human beings. Think about the movie, if you recall it, and I bet you've seen it in a variety of forms. 
We know that Scrooge is visited by three spirits. Christmas past, Christmas present, Christmas future. And all of them warn him with great foreboding about the destiny that awaits him because of the crummy, selfish life that he has lived. But it is not the spirits that turn his heart. It is the witness of his human friends, his ordinary human friends. It's their witness of pointing, continuing to point him to the true meaning of Christmas that eventually wins Scrooge over. Watch this clip. A toast to Mr. Scrooge, the founder of our faith. I'm sure how can one do such an understanding? Oh, and I'm feeling that Mr. Scrooge. Just you know he's proper. Nobody knows it better than you. Martin, Christmas Day. I'll drink his health for your sake and the day's the freeze. A Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. You'll be very merry and very happy, I have no doubt. A Merry Christmas to us all, my dears. God bless us. God bless us. God bless us. God bless us. Everyone. This may be the most Christian clip in the movie. Jesus said, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And that's exactly what is happening here. Screw, um, Cratchit, who has every reason to loathe this boss who has been so misused, so abused, he is the one who graciously offers this Christmas toast. His wife can't stand it because she knows how, how poorly he's been treated by Scrooge. And yet, Cratchit insists. And it is this undeserved act of grace that begins to turn Scrooge's heart. And then we experience his final redemption in this heartwarming scene.
You can't help but wonder how many times Fred appeared in Scrooge's office at Christmas time. How many invitations he put towards Scrooge. How many times Scrooge rejected him, pushed him aside. And he just didn't give up. He returned kindness for bitterness. He returned generosity for stinginess. And finally, Scrooge appears in that wonderful moment in the door where he says, I've come for dinner if you'll have me. The message of the movie, and really in some ways an important message of the gospel is this. God uses stubborn, persistent, ordinary human beings to reach even the Scrooges, the curmudgeons of our life. We have a story like that in our own church family that I want to share with you. You saw Morgan come into membership just moments ago. He took the vows of membership. But Morgan Hutchins' story is really more complicated than that, so I want Morgan to come up wherever he is. You're scaring me, dude. You're sitting in the wrong spot. See? Even I get want people to sit in the same places. <laughs> come on up. Morgan's been a part of the church for a long time. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your story here at Chapel Hill? Um, I came into the church uh, with my family when I was nine and a half months old. Um, I'm 31 now, so it's been a while. And uh, I grew up in the church with my family. We were here for services on Sundays. Um, And about when I hit my teenage years, 13 or 14, I kind of wasn't really focused on my faith so much anymore. And uh, then when I was 15, a friend of mine in school uh, took his own life. And it was at that moment I said, there is no God. And if there was, he clearly doesn't care about the people he said he created. Hmm. You kind of checked out of faith, but you didn't just quietly check out of faith, did you? No, I, I very ardently was against it. I believe religion, specifically Christianity, was a cancerous stain on all of humanity. Hmm. And it, there was a part of you that became kind of mean, even to the point of being a fighter and getting... There's a lot of stuff going on in your life, a lot of anger coming out, wasn't there? Yeah, I was a very unhappy person. I didn't, I didn't realize that when I checked out from God, I had opened this little hole in my soul. And over time, that hole grew into a baseball-sized hole, and, and I couldn't fill it. And about 18 months ago, you reached your end, your wit's end, didn't you? What happened? Um, well, I was talking to my brother, and I had just moved back from Seattle, and um, I was talking to my brother, and he told me, you can't keep trying to do life by yourself. If you try to do life without God in it, you, you're going to find it completely impossible because you're not good at doing life by yourself. <laughs> and so what did you do with that ad- advice? Oh, uh, he set up a meeting with you. Yes, he uh, did. For me. <laughs> <laughs> so that was awesome. Um, <laughs> so I came in, um, and I was expecting... Honestly, I was expecting what I had told myself this whole time. I was just going to get lectured and... Pastor Mark was going to say, where have you been? I have been talking this whole time, and you haven't been listening or paying attention. Most of the time, I wasn't even there. 
Um, but there was no lecture. There was no judgment. He, he greeted me like we got coffee every Friday, you know, for the last 15 years. It was with a hug and with nothing but love. And it was great. And we spoke for a couple, a hours. couple hours, a little bit longer than I probably intended. But uh, Me too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I took up quite a bit of time. It was fun. Um, and, yeah, we talked for a couple hours, and you brought me back. And I said my first real prayer uh, in about 15 years, and I invited Christ back into my heart. Yeah. And uh, the ensuing 18 months have been a kind of a different story, haven't they? Tell us a little bit about what's been happening these last year and a half. Uh, my whole outlook on life itself has completely changed. I'm not the uh, Scrooge so much anymore, which, thanks, You're that's welcome. the first time I've ever been compared to that. Appreciate it. Um, I, I met a woman who is a dream come true for me and she herself is, is God fearing and she's a very godly woman and I am incredibly lucky. I cherish and embrace my family so much more and I have embraced this community and this church so much more and I actually listen to your sermons now. Which is really cool. That'll make them, that makes about eight of you, so that's really cool. Right. And uh, that, you also went to Alpha? I went to Alpha, um, reluctantly at first, because I never really wanted to be a part of any church group or anything like that. But I went, and I was really blown away. It was really awesome to be able to have an honest conversation mm-hmm. and ask questions and get honest answers from people and be able to just bounce back and forth and just have kind of that open space environment to be able to actually have a conversation about God. And it was amazing. So I kept going back. And come full circle now uh, at nine o'clock service, you were baptized and became a member of this congregation, right? Welcome aboard. If you have one piece of advice for a family that have lost hope uh, because of, of a friend or a kid or a spouse that is apparently kind of running hard in the opposite direction, if you could give one piece of advice, what would it be? Do what my mother did and just keep praying. Keep praying for that person. Yeah. Um, just, yeah, keep praying. It's what my mom did, and it pr- turned you out right, pretty good. Praise you right back. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for sharing your story with us, brother. There's no season like Christmas which provides an opportunity to pry open doors that have previously been slammed shut, that allows people that you've asked again and again who have rejected you every time, that, that, that might put them in the mood to say yes. And, and I think Morgan's story, the, the, the encouragement that we get from Scripture today reminds us that, listen, this is the work of the Spirit. And when the Spirit aligns with the, the work of His people in the right way, it only takes one moment. One time, one invitation, where suddenly they say, maybe I'll try. So in this season when we've been talking about hospitality and warmth and inviting, I want you to be courageous. 
There are scrooges in your life, curmudgeons in your life that, that you've stopped really even having any hope for. You never know what God might do. Don't give up. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for Morgan's story, for his willingness to share it with us. Thank you for the the way that it reminds us of our own state of brokenness at one point and how you and your faithfulness just chased us down. You would not let go and you called us back to yourself. But it reminds us, God, of how you use people, courageous people, willing to invite, willing to be rebuked and resisted and scorned even, but who keep trying. Just ordinary folks like those seated in this room right now. God, would you please stir our hearts, encourage us, give us more courage to reach out to those that seem unreachable because we know that when you speak your word into darkness, the light shatters that darkness. May it be so this Christmas. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.